0: Welcome to HJ Talks About Charities, a dedicated podcast series from our charities team at Hugh James. In this podcast, we talk about topical issues and the latest developments affecting charitable and not-for-profit organisations to help provide some practical guidance to ensure they run effectively. We are lawyers, so we will touch on the legal standpoints surrounding the topics, but don't worry, we'll keep the legalese to a minimum.
1: Hello everyone, and welcome to another podcast from Myself and Sarah Bolt for looking at charity law, and specifically this week we're looking at a roundup of some of the recent interesting cases in uh, the legacy disputes arena. Sarah, I know we've just seen this huge wave of cases recently,
0: haven't we? We have. It's been a huge influx in the last couple of weeks, actually. So
1: I don't know whether it's because people have been bored and there's been the news has been light. There's no there there's less on coronavirus and Brexit or what. But yeah, it certainly seems to be that the, uh, the pages are littered with contentious probate claims and the court seems to be pushing them out 10 to a dozen. Right then, so the first case we've got, which I think you you spotted M&B forwarding to me in a big excitement, was uh, the Mars and Shearer case, wasn't it?
0: Yes, it was. I think it was an eight or 10 day hearing in the high court a few months ago. And a claim by two adult children under the Inheritance Provision for Family Independence Act 1975. Both were seeking a payment for reasonable financial provision for their maintenance under the Act. In quite an exciting turn, it came around quite quickly in terms of decision. Do you want me to run through the facts? Um, yeah, please. Cool. So the claim was against the estate of Anthony Shearer, the farmer, uh, farmer, not farmer, his former chief executive. So he had quite a lot of money in his estate, a, few, a fair few million. He was married for a second time, and the claim was actually bought by his two adult daughters from his first marriage. and they that, that sounds
1: unusual. <laughs> Paying <laughs> children,
0: my children, stepmom, yeah, supported by the mum uh, or the f- former wife at the f- in the first marriage as well. So, neither of the adult children who were 39 and 40 years old benefited under the will he had made. The primary beneficiary was his second wife, and gifts had been made to the children throughout his lifetime, but they he had maintained well, they, they <laughs> had done very, very well. I think the last payment was for quite a big whack of money. And
1: the other one 175,000 properties or something.
0: So both of them had their own jobs. They were independently wealthy, as I think the court referred to them, and they had no support from him financially after 2008. So that's quite some time between the payments and also the last years of his life, there were big periods of estrangement with him. So they weren't on good terms all of that time. So one of the key factors that went against the two adult children were the fact that they didn't elect to disclose details of their finances, which the court automatically inferred that they were able to maintain themselves outside of his estate without any input from him. And that's inheritance
1: that claim 101, isn't it? You know, if you're yes, exactly. you disclose your, your financial position. You can't just hold out a begging bowl without giving any other information.
0: I so two of the things that they saw were quite interesting, actually. So one of the daughters sought a lump sum to buy out her own ex-husband from 11% of the equity that she owned in the property with him. But the payment wasn't due until 2034, and the court held that that essentially wasn't an obligation that was reasonably foreseeable. It was too far in the future. And then, the second daughter sought for money or assistance to help with the physical and mental disabilities of her own children, i.e., the deceased grandchildren. Yeah, and one of
1: them was autistic, weren't
0: they? Yes, yeah, and the court also held that that wasn't kind of one of the factors they would take into account.
1: I mean so, that goes to the very core of the outdoor, doesn't it? It's um, it's not there to provide for someone in turn to provide for someone else. It's it's yeah. there to provide for the claimant, themselves.
0: So both were held to to be able to meet their own maintenance needs. And and one of the big factors was the fact that there was no financial obligations that he had demonstrated to towards either of his daughters from two thousand and eight onwards. And the fact that he had made large gifts and had actually told them afterwards that he wasn't going to give them any more financial assistance. So why that took eight days or 10 days in court is beyond me. But uh, yeah, so ultimately both of their claims was unsuccessful. I'm not quite aware of what happened in terms of the cost. I would imagine they're quite substantial. But essentially, they failed to establish that either of them needed reasonable financial revision and that their claim ultimately failed on that basis. But one of the criticisms that came across, actually, was that both the daughters and the first wife were considered not to be entirely satisfactory witnesses. The judge actually said each of them felt like they had an axe to grind against the, the second new wife and it weren't in any sense objective whereas the second wife came across very straightforward and objective so it does come down a lot of the time to the evidence that is given
1: there seems um, to be a lot of that at the moment though doesn't it? especially I maybe, know. maybe it's evidence over video link but there seems to be a huge amount of criticism of witness evidence in the cases that we're seeing at the moment it's quite striking
0: <laughs> Actually, it comes on quite nicely to the next one, I would imagine, in terms of what we're talking about, and we can go on to that. Actually, it's also re- so it's relevant in Eden Hogg, which we'll discuss. And oh, that's a
1: fantastic case. So yeah, There seems to be a lot of criticism by the judiciary against witnesses, especially in more recent cases now. I don't know whether it's video conferencing or, or whether witnesses feel that they're able to bend the truth a bit more, but um, it certainly seems to be a general theme running through the cases.
0: And certainly more damning in the next one that we've come on to, which is Eden Hogg, which it's is a actually quite surprising. So decided in the last week, and the judge's criticism of what is a solicitor to a professional was <laughs> quite quite damning. Across and what was
1: actually quite a simple case, I think the first lines of judgment, basically, Deputy Master really just says, this is, at its simplest, a claim to rectify or construe a will by replacing the word both, so with each. I mean, yeah. how... How hard is this going to be? It's not going to be too contested, right? <laughs>
0: <laughs> so into the realms of will rectification, though, so as Roman's just said, the solicitor that prepared the will for the deceased in this case had a manuscript will and essentially had recorded that the deceased had said each of the shares, but had later been transcribed into both, so that both the wife and the friend would receive 26% of the shares in a very valuable company, so the difference between the two was effectively whether they were going to inherit twenty six percent each or twenty six percent together. That's um, a
1: controlling share, isn't it? That's the point. Two,
0: 26%. Yeah.
1: A controlling share.
0: Basically, it had to go all the way to a contested trial because the solicitor who drafted it was adamant that it was both. <laughs> I mean, that's that's
1: concerning of itself given the findings that the judge makes, and I mean, why this is particularly relevant within a legacy context, is one of the beneficiaries was Cancer Research UK. And they actually says in the judgment they they felt they had no choice or no alternative but to defend this on the basis of the evidence of the solicitor. And this was not a small estate. The whole estate was worth about $6.4 Yeah, There's a lot at stake here, as you can see. Well, obviously, we'll come through in a second. But it's certainly troubling, isn't it? Um, So the issue was with the solicitor, wasn't it?
0: Yeah, so the solicitor in this case didn't keep any notes or make proper attendance notes as they um, recorded it when he was taking instructions from the deceased who was an elderly individual and he was making quite significant changes from what the solicitor was saying to his will. So retrospectively, that that was the first error. And the second very, very troubling error was that Mrs. Node, being the deceased wife, attended those meetings and sat in them with her husband whilst they, the instructions were being given. And contrary to what the solicitor was saying, she was at polar opposites. So essentially, she was saying it was very clear that there was no big change. It was just purely a change of wording, not from each to both. But the solicitor was absolutely adamant that despite having no note, he could recall every single bit of that appointment. It just at complete yeah. odds as to why he was so adamant but
1: i mean mrs node was to be fair she was sharp as a tag wasn't she i think it was said during the evidence that she was the one who essentially ran she was the brains behind the operation and kind of, sort of dealt with all the fi- property and financial affairs she's saying one thing the solicitors saying something totally different it just it's very and odd isn't it
0: telling as well though that obviously with mrs node it would have been quite a big thing in her life to have remembered because it's not <laughs> day you go to a lawyer but it's very difficult when you work on the other side because as we we do we work on numerous cases so and over the years it's not always possible to remember everything about every every case so it does seem slightly at odds that one would be saying yes and one would be saying no and yet insist on that enough to go to a fully contested trial so and and we talked about it earlier but there was expert handwriting expert evidence given on this as well
1: Yeah, by none other than Ellen Radley, who I gave a a talk with to the ILM just yesterday, actually. And um, it was, I I gave my talk and, you know, there were were a couple of questions. And, you know, I like to think people were interested. Ellen gave her talk and one of the responses on the chat on one of the members was just, wow. I've never had a wow giving my talk, but it is really (laughs) impressive, the work she does. And, you know, the forensic documenting exactly examination analysis is incredibly interesting how yeah. did she get
0: to this then did so she, she actually went to look at the original manuscript which the lister had produced to show that originally when he had taken instructions at the meeting he had included the word each and it had later been crossed out to include the word both or it had been wrongly transcribed up but essentially she had shown that when the instructions were given he had written each which was actually one of the biggest factors that went against him at trial.
1: it was a fantastic moment in cross-examination. Alexander Lemont's QC, as he is now, was cross-examining a solicitor and he said, and I think the judgment reads, really I think it's around it's paragraph 76. It said, um a solicitor won't name, I mean the judgment's out there, but he did vacillate in an attempt to explain away matters in his oral evidence. One example concerned the crucial issue was XXX, each or both question was put to the solicitor after a period of sustained but fair cross-examination, and he says, solicitor answered each. So obviously, it, by accident, and answered each, but the bit I love is what follows oh, is, the hush indicating surprise or shock that would usually follow in a face-to-face hearing was absent from this remote, remote hearing, but it was a significant statement. So essentially, I think even Jamal's would say here, it's been a bit of a cock-up. He didn't need to say that, and then he seeks to, Correct himself. He says he requested a short break so as to collect himself. He came back and excused himself by saying first his head was spinning, as Mr. Learmonth like said his secretary had made a hash of it. Secondly, his pixelated face had distracted him. And finally, <laughs> and even less convincing than the two other excuses, that he was taken by surprise by the question. I mean, it's, it's the most crucial question to this case. It just, there's no praise for him here is there I mean I was saying
0: this is I think the overall be... <laughs> phrase has been describing him by the judge was when he rejected his evidence was evasive equivocal frankly unsatisfactory I think that's probably as far as you can go without saying someone's lying <laughs> yeah
1: exactly I mean it just it's that classic cognitive dissonance of looking to you know being unable unwilling or maybe I don't know you know maybe too too arrogant to admit your mistakes if that is the case it's borne out then you know, had he simply remained neutral, the defenders may not have needed to defend the action so as strongly as they did, and could have potentially saved a lot of costs and a lot of hassle for everyone.
0: I'd be interested to see why he took that position, like as in to understand the basis as to why he had to fight it so strongly. It's not entirely clear from the case, no. such a strong stance. So I, I think overall, they basically said that he was not giving impartial evidence
1: he said he was acting as an executor, but then filed two statements saying why it was both and not each. Am I getting that the right way round? Sure. No, it's 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 sad that I had to get this, this far in this way. But I mean, and actually, this is I had a case recently, a rectification claim where the solicitors put their hands up and said, yep, we got it wrong." And they said, at a really early stage, we still had to proceed the application because there was a minor involved, but it went through without a hitch. And Ultimately, I think everyone saved costs because the the result was going to be inevitable. But yeah, it's a really just an astounding case. So did it involve construction or was it rectification? I think it was I think went
0: under so interpretation. He basically said the use of the word both was capable of being interpreted as each in light of the evidence of Mr Noe's intentions and admissible under Section 21 of the Administration of Justice Act 1982 but alternatively, it'd be rectifiable to each other Good. clerical error. So section
1: 20.
0: Two, they did both. <laughs> right.
1: Which is pretty resounding. I think the other thing is they were talking about part of the reason why they couldn't find the files they've apparently been lost. And I think, I mean, again, you could tell what Deputy Martin Luther was at because They recommended a report to the Information Commissioner's Office, a report to the insurer's possible report to the SRA and any legal quality assurance schemes such as LegCell and to the clients themselves. I mean, this is, once you know, to notify of violent and sundry, that's how impressed he was. So a word of caution to any will writers who are facing such a claim.
0: I have to say, though, that was a really bad day at the office.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I, know, I, I shouldn't have, because it's, it's horrible. But yeah, it really, it really, it doesn't get much worse than that, does it?
0: I'm not trying to put you on the spot. What do they do for will writers? Because they're not obviously, some of them aren't regulated in the same way that a solicitor is. I guess
1: they'll be able to do an information commissioner's office report. Obviously, there's no regulation with the SRA. Some of them are the will's assurance scheme, don't they?
0: Yeah.
1: And then there's, you know, a lot of them will have insurance of some description, but...
0: Making a will with a solicitor that is regulated, again. Well, that's the thing.
1: And the fact that the clients have got the comforts here... That this can go to the insurers. Yeah. So, which is probably very little comfort at this stage. <laughs> so, from that, we then have another adult child inheritance act claim of Rodgeford and Rodgeford, don't we?
0: It's actually unreported. Um, the, the listeners who did the case actually released it, and I think it went to like the t- estate and tax press, as, as exciting as that is. So it's actually an unreported case, and it actually involves quite a nominal value in terms of the estate, which is why it gets such a damning comment from the judge. Again, so another which claim under the 1975 Act by an adult child against her father's which estate. Which I know
1: charities are really sick of hearing our dialect across, really but <laughs> it's showing the tide is turning, isn't it?
0: So essentially, in this case, she was arguing for further help. She was only left 25000 from an estate, I think, that was just under 200000 So quite a nominal amount in itself. She claimed to have an income shortfall and also that she needed help for a disability. Yeah. The remainder of the estate was left to her, her mum. And she actually was successful. But the, the key here is that she offered to mediate, I think, a number of times. And the defendants refused on the basis that they considered her claim to lack merit and felt that she needed to produce additional documents. Joseph so was at
1: 36 of it, didn't she? Went, uh, I think. Yes, yeah,
0: she did. And in terms of the award, she actually got an additional sum of 85,000. So she got about 44% of the residuary in total. But the judge really, really went to town and basically was so impressed with how the claim was progressed. The fees were obviously going to be quite substantial. And the way in which the defendant refused to mediate because they lacked documents, he basically awarded the most punitive elements of costs on an indemnity basis, which is the more severe of the two. So if there's any doubt over the costs that have been incurred, they would go in favour of the person seeking to recover them, rather than the standard, which is the opposite way around. Then he added interest, and then he added an additional penalty of 10% on the judgment amount, Couldn't have been more, like, uh, more damning if it tried.
1: A lesson um, to be learned to uh, those who are unreasonably refuse mediation.
0: Yes, for, people, particularly because we see quite a lot of estates around this figure and it does seem yeah. uh, quite unattractive to go all the way to trial, but sometimes you're left in a very difficult position. I think the message here is that you should try to enter into mediation and to encourage people there, but if it's not possible... To settle, don't just throw that prospect out the window. At least try to engage in something. Yeah,
1: think of tactical offers you can make. Or I know you probably, as you say, as I've got a certain case in mind working on at the moment, and that's it. You know, it's even if the other side aren't cooperating, look at other measures. Look at suggesting an early neutral evaluation or any, not at any cost, but you have to be, you have to show tactically that you're taking steps to try to avoid trial. It's very much a last resort, and then. I mean, the, the next case, I mean, it, this, is, this is all over to you. I, I know you're a fan of this case.
0: I'm not quite sure where it's been reported, but it's a beautiful Daily Mail article. So it's Tracy Magnus uh, against her own mum, Caroline Magnus. The headline is essentially that she is the owner or boss of the Giggly Pig Gourmet Sausage Making Company and that she's sued by her mother over an agreement to transfer her house to her daughter. Why it's so interesting is effectively the house is worth just over half a million and she had claimed to have become a guest in her own house. But her daughter had thought to do it on the basis that she wanted to avoid her having to pay care fees from that property in the future. She claimed that she had the right to live there for her life. So all the classic things that happen where someone is seeking to try and reduce what they're paying later on in their lifetime. And it went to a four-day hearing, and the judge did actually come out to say that he felt the mum lacked sufficient mental awareness to enter into the transfer. And secondly, that the daughter had gone as far to say that it was procured by undue influence, which is quite an unusual finding because they're quite hard claims to to get to. But actually, after you read into it a little bit more, the judge actually goes on to say that Tracy was doing it, the daughter, for her mum's best interest. She wasn't doing it for her own benefit.
1: It's quite nice to see that because we see a lot, don't we, where family members, children, are appointed as attorneys for their parents, and they start making payments out. Oh, this is what mum would have wanted. This is what dad would have wanted. And there is, you know, the, you've got to follow the letter law, but the, there is, when you're caught up in that, that you can understand how people do that and how actually probably many of these people, if they had capacity, would have done it. I mean, this is the way this is reported now be because I don't think the fact that she's that the daughter was the boss of the giggly pig sausage company has any bearing on this, does it?
0: Not uh, at all. Except that
1: maybe it was a rasher decision. Um, and I apologise. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> it don't get much better. I mean, in fact, the judge probably saved the mother's bacon. Um. <laughs> I don't know many sausages, so I won't try. But the, what strikes me here, though, is this is that these are sort of cases we used to see years ago. You don't see them so much now of the classic transferring property of child's name to avoid care home fees. We all know it doesn't really work in practice.
0: Yeah, but- and you know, I think it actually came to fruition because there was a massive family fallout, as we often see. So I, I suspect there's going to be little kind of love loss when they, that actually gets resolved. But the main factor seems to be between the mum obviously feeling like she was in there in her own home as a guest. And it seems like a misunderstanding, actually, because the decision was not actually to transfer or cancel the transfer so it would go back to mum, but still to keep the trust in place. And the parties have been told to go away and sort it out. <laughs> so, Again, it has
1: been a few decisions like that, haven't they, Rose? The yeah. are saying, go away
0: and sort this bit out. So I think overall, the trust sounds like it was what was intended or should have happened to protect her interests. Ultimately, that will probably be a trust where she's able to stay in it for a lifetime if she wants to move on somewhere else they can sell it and then buy another property i would suspect that's what will happen ultimately it's not in her name so if there are issues about care home fees which given they've suggested she lacked mental capacity might be an issue in the near future she's not going to be on the on the hook for that so
1: well except, i mean except for the fact that obviously the local authority can yeah i uh, can't uh, deliberate so deprivation of assets but it's um each local authority has different rules on that, so it's uh, it's uh, it's an art rather than a science, isn't it?
0: Good that it's in the press to help them with that as well. <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> Absolutely, really, really put the shine a light on it. And then I guess to something a bit more sort of I'm not going to say well I'm going to say highbrow. Yeah, we've got Dale and Banger, is it, and others?
0: Yeah, so a slightly different case. I think it's quite an interesting one because in the beginning of Dale and Banger. Essentially, there's two wills. One is made in favour of Mrs Dale and her family, and one's yeah. made in favour of Mr Banger and his. Which is often the way with two different wills very closely together. And it all came down to whether there was a there were two wills and a letter of revocation. And essentially, it came down to whether the letter of revocation was valid or not. And Mr Banger gave evidence on the letter of revocation. And Ultimately, the letter
1: will had only been signed by one witness anyway, hadn't it? Yeah, so that one was basically
0: valid. And essentially, they were trying to argue that the deceased estate passed under the rules of intestacy. So it was whether or not the two wills were valid at all. And there was a suggestion that the earlier will had been obtained by um, undue influence, but that was rejected on a non-conclusion. So all the way after trial in 2020... Mrs. Dale, who obviously lost the first time round, applied for permission out of time time, to rely on fresh evidence. Now, it's really, really strict circumstances in which they do allow that. And in this case, she had produced evidence to show that Mr. Banger had to suggest or infer that he had perjured himself on another case. And therefore that was relevant to whether the letter of revocation was valid or not.
1: Going back to his bad character. Isn't it?
0: Exactly. So I, one of them was about evidence at a criminal investigation involving a lot of false invoices. But he had ultimately been acquitted because of lack of evidence. Now, that doesn't say that he's not guilty. It's just that they didn't have enough evidence to prove the case. And
1: um, kind it of goes back to that difference. And again, I'll talk about this at. During the forgery talk with for the island, but it's that difference of the standard of proof, isn't it? Because
0: exactly you
1: may have a lack of evidence in a criminal case, but because the standard of proof is so much higher, it's on beyond reasonable doubt. But even if you're acquitted at a criminal level, if that evidence is enough to shift yeah or the proof to you know the standard proof of abilities you can find that you're guilty. There. So I think I I've got to say it, but I think as a as a ground for appeal, it's quite quite a smart ground
0: actually. Yeah and I I do have some sympathy for Mrs Dale on this one because if it had been available at trial the judge said it would have gone to his question of credibility and he could have obviously been cross-examined on it so that might have changed his view or kind of changed the judge's view on the day like as to, to what credibility that evidence should have been given. Looking back you would think it would have some weight, but essentially he, he said that that wasn't enough to overturn or, or mean the judgment had to go back for a rehearing.
1: And the reason they said that was because the trial judge sits retired and it wouldn't have been expedient, convenient or proportionate for the case to be dealt with in that way.
0: What is concerning about that is, though, that's not a factor that's within Mrs Dale's control. I know. Um,
1: and by allow um, the appeal in the first case, if that's the, that's the conclusion you're going to reach, because you you'd be reaching that conclusion anyway if you're doing, well I dealing with a retrial, which surely they would have seen as the ground of appeal anyway.
0: So I do I do on that ground. I mean I, I'd be worried if we had some judges that were nearing retirement, would you want to have them hear it just like going back for an appeal? It does worry me slightly yeah, in that I I, I can understand the decision of
1: itself, but it's a strange, it's a strange reason to give. I know that's yeah. not the only reason, but to cite that as a reason is strange. And I appreciate that you know they've got to consider the overriding objective of ensuring cases are dealt with just and proportionately. But it's yeah, you can see why it'd be incredibly frustrating still.
0: So I think that leads on to the the most recent case that's been decided that we've got to discuss, which I think is Cliff Row and Bonds, which has been long coming. So it's decided. Widely in the
1: reported, isn't it as well? Really
0: widely reported. So. It was decided in the last couple of weeks, and essentially the deceased had three children, and one of them had deeply affected the deceased before she had actually passed away. Her daughter died of cancer when she was forty-six years old, so really young. That's really
1: um, a tragic. Case, wasn't
0: really, really bad in that sense, and um, and the deceased herself had ended up with long-standing ailments. She had been bedridden until basically she passed away in September twenty seventeen. So. She was 76 years old herself. She had left two wills, both prepared with the assistance of solicitors. What's interesting is they were done in 2010 and 2013, so quite some time before her own death, but both of them ignored the golden rule. Yeah. They basically didn't look at whether to get supporting medical evidence, I think, in this case.
1: That's the thing, wasn't it? There was no, temp- oh, there was no medical evidence at the time, an assessment. There was an argument between the medical experts... In the case, isn't it? there's Dr. Hugh Series and Professor Robin Jacoby here. A
0: standing like guy, like,
1: yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah, medical experts in their
1: own right. So, yeah, a, a lot of it did all or come down to the effect that this Dr. Debs' death had had on the mum because I think they were saying there was so Susan, so the, the initial judgment again, that was before I said the deputy in with at first instance had ruled that the wills are invalid and so. Susan inherited half of the estate boris of intestacy. Mm. But the case was that shortly before her death, Susan and mum, Jean, had fallen out because they were looking at, there was an argument about obtaining morphine to help.
0: Lots of different, really weird accusations, actually. And I I think this probably goes to whether or not she was manifesting a delusion. So she was accused of being a shopaholic and frittering away whatever money that Jean would have given to her. And a lack of contact, and she was accused of ransacking the daughter that had passed away property after her death and refusing to give that to her own daughter, i e the granddaughter. So on top of those, there were lots of different examples where it appeared that the deceased had actually got a campaign against her. It seems a very odd series of thoughts There was a lot wasn't
1: there about, it? and I think one of the one of the tableaus cited theft of Harry Potter books as well as a reason didn't it so yeah, they're very
0: expensive so if you get a first edition Harry Potter it's worth 30 grand oh, good lord <laughs> check your book <laughs>
1: <laughs> I, can, I can assure you I don't have those but, uh, and nor were my children based on that um, but yeah it's, um, it came down to what well, it was the meaning and the I guess the political definition of delusion didn't it because you had the case of Key and Key a few years ago, which was the sort of first case which really significantly developed the banks and goodfellow test. The banks and goodfellow test, obviously, you know, I'm pretty sure most people, most listeners will be aware, all two of them. But it's basically the 1870 case says that it's essential that the testator shall understand the nature of the act and its effects, shall understand the extent of the property of which they are disposing, shall be able to comprehend and appreciate the claims to which they ought to give effect. And with a view to that, no disorder of the mind shall poison their affections, pervert their sense of right, or prevent the exercise of their natural faculties, and that no insane delusion shall influence their will in disposing of their property and bring about a disposal of it which, the mind had been sound, would not have been made. I've obviously taken that all from my memory and was not reading that <laughs> from the screen in front of me. But the key here was, well, in the key key case, it came down to whether... Total devastation of a woman's of her husband's death, which then led, well, her children, to of her four children, take her to make a will a week later. And that total devastation created pseudo dementia-like yeah. impact on her cognitive abilities. Here, similar arguments are run, aren't they? But there were to say that there were these delusions, which were either, and the difference was were they did the delusion have to be long-standing and impossible to alter? by the way of reasoned arguments or could it be a temporary illusion and that was kind of one of the grounds of appeal wasn't
0: it yeah so the first time round, they they basically held that both of the wills were invalid that obviously the estate would pass equally between the two surviving like the daughter and the son and that was appealed by the son who would have benefited under the terms of evil will and essentially at first instance i think they found that the complex reaction to grief had manifested a delusion through her depression and then this, in the insane delusions, together with poisoning of her mind, that led to them to conclude that she didn't have the capacity to make those wills. So it was appealed on two, like, I think there were several grounds.
1: There are quite a few were the ones that kind of have made the headlines yeah, well, the banks one. and good fellow tests, wasn't it? Is that still valid or should it be the Mental Capacity Act test? And I mean, I feel like this is something that every, every few years it rears its head again and every three years it, you know, the courts do the right thing and say, no, it's still Banks versus Goodfellow.
0: Which is interesting because in some cases, when you do the test under Banks and Goodfellows and the Mental Capacity Act, they come out with the same result. And then it was one of those cases again here where it was the burden of proof as to who has no capacity that was the turning point. So obviously in this case, the Banks and Goodfellows test highlighted and helped Susan, whereas the Mental Capacity Act obviously helped the son. So that was why the big argument came down to it. But ultimately, it was held that the Banks and Goodfellow test remains good law. Again, kind of cementing where the law has been since the 1800s. Yeah, yeah
1: you're not going to shift it in the High Court, my friend.
0: Yes, um, yeah. Keep I mean, going, though. I like the... Um, yeah.
1: the of it. <laughs> it's good. It's um, I mean, Because, yeah, the mental capacity act has that, well, there's a difference in the burden of proof, isn't there? But you also have to,
0: you know, it's about the
1: inability to make decisions on the, the Section 3, isn't it, that Look, looks like whether a person's unable to make a decision for themselves and they are unable to understand the information relevant to it and to retain it, to use weigh it up as part of their, you know, the process of decision-making or to communicate it. But it's quite prescriptive. But, yeah, there that was, that was evidence skip to that. And then on the ground of delusion...
0: They actually just, said here that the relevant false belief must be irrational and fixed in nature. So it does narrow kind of the test as it stands at the moment. So it adds on to to the Banks and Goodfellows kind of way of thinking. And here they held again, from the sounds of it, that it still fell into the delusion category. What I find particularly interesting, as we spoke about earlier, is that the court actually adjourned the case for three months to allow the parties to reflect on the position that had been made (coughs) by the court. So the observations were actually designed to help the parties and facilitate them towards an agreement. I suspect if they had to go back to court, they would not be looked on very favourably by the judge. Well, exactly. It's, it's another no. one, a bit
1: like the banger one, where the sue the daughters made an application to admit new evidence. And the judge said here, essentially, that because of that, she's not mm-hmm. in a position to determine it, but she's strongly suggesting... <laughs> they go away and sort it out, yeah, through so mediation so or otherwise.
0: So the estate here, like I said to you earlier, was worth around 350000 which is it's not like something to be sniffed at, but I think the vast majority of this will now have gone on legal fees. First instance, um,
1: appeal, mediation, oh, that, yeah, we've gone, it's... So it's quite a shame. Yeah, so um, what do you think? Do you think we'll see this one back
0: at court? You know, in my heart of hearts, I would hope that it would be... Done, and that would knock it on the head and move on but when you get people at warring fa- factions as we often see logic goes out the window so I wouldn't be surprised if it does come back again
1: watch this space brilliant well that's a sort of round up key cases so far but you want
0: to a... ah, we've got yeah. one more Roman I missed <gasps> it today. which one that? that? it's the Davy and
1: Jones one that's
0: the Deathbed the... Will one yep got room for, <laughs> for Deathbed <in> Will <laughs> I just did an article, actually, for one of the journals on this case, which is interesting because in the last 20 years, sorry, before the last 20 years, there was very little to no case law on this topic. And then in the last couple of years, they've had quite a few. I think the last one was the King case, which involved quite a few charities involved in that one. And so, again, a deathbed will is a very stringent requirement that you can leave your gift outside of your will, or you can leave your property outside of the prescribed requirements set out by the Law of Property Act. Essentially, you have to go through three different requirements. One being that they are the person leaving the gift has contemplated their imminent death. It's not a very nice topic, this one. Good one is... to end on. Yeah, great. Stay <laughs> so, so nice and chirpy. The gift must only take effect on their death and yeah. so it could be revoked prior to it. And then the donor, so the deceased, must have delivered dominion over the subject matter. And what's interesting is this case is one of a number of them, whereas they're not quite sure if you have registered land, i.e. something that's registered at the land registry, whether you can actually deliver dominion of that over to somebody. So
1: this is they should have been done with, because um, the, the previous cases have sought to narrow this down, haven't they? And they've said you can't yeah property I mean it's I think this this was an old hangover of Roman law I think or something where yeah they're trying I think the courts are trying everything to well you know pardon, pardon, but to kill off deathbed gifts aren't they so um oh yeah, yeah sorry sorry to interject
0: oh no and I actually I feel for for the cases that do come through you do have a lot of sympathy because there's honestly an intention and it appears to be a good intention by a lot of the deceased involved who wants to pass over their assets, they don't take the necessary steps to go to a solicitor uh, yeah. and all they have, and it's just been too late for them. So the people that are left with the gifts are not those that are intended to during the lifetime of the deceased, but they haven't quite got through the formalities of what they need to do. So in this case, there were three separate gifts. One of them was of a butcher's shop. One of them was of uh, the property. And I think the other was a substantial gift of cash. And it was a registered property rather than an unregistered. So All that the deceased had done in this case was do some checklists. And she had known that she was dying of cancer. She'd been given a terminal diagnosis. She had then made a checklist with Macmillan, who had then given her the kind of suggestion to go home and sort things out. She obviously knew she was passing away. She even made steps to arrange her own funeral. And she left directions for her husband to then change his will after she had died. So they didn't go to each other, essentially and effectively what happened was he was overcome by grief he did take steps to instruct a lawyer but he wanted to go home and think about it and by the time he had gone back to try and change it he had actually passed away unexpectedly from a heart attack so he wasn't planning to die he didn't know he was going to die there was no disease no known kind of nothing that kind of gave him that intention so the court had to look at both the first Attempts to leave the property by the by the deceased wife, and then subsequently to that the husband, and all four on all of those requirements. The only one that I could see that was met was that in the first instance with the wife, she knew and she was contemplating her own death.
1: death yeah. and but it's got death. to be an imminent death, doesn't it? It's not something where yeah. I'm not, you know I'm likely to die in five years. It's got to be I'm due to die shortly. Essentially, by its very nature, the deathbed deathbed rule. But um, and yeah, the other. Yeah, registered versus unregistered land. If you've got unregistered land, you've got deeds, then that's generally, or in the past, been shown to hand over dominion if you hand over those deeds, same way of handing over car keys or something like that. But um, as I said, the the, the courts have been keen to stub these out. But that being said, I wonder whether something like this, obviously with the Law Commission consultation on Wales and their recommendations back in 2017 and the subsequent recommendations about giving the court special dispensing powers to allow certain types of will which perhaps haven't met the Section 9 requirements. That's essentially what this is. This is a work around around Section 9, the Wills Act, whether something like this would be a good case for it.
0: With the King case, they involved quite a few charities. And I know we spoke about the technical changes that the Charity Commission were looking into and I suspect this would probably be a prime case for the ex-gratia payments to be made, because obviously the intentions were there, it's just the formalities that haven't been complied with. But it still comes down to the fact that like, large amounts of what they were trying to gift over came to more than 50% of the residuary, so it would have made a big difference. Yeah. And in case, I think they actually found a way to get the money to the nephew, basically under the 1975 Act. So there was a way of kind of softening the blow, but here there wasn't so- that's
1: right. That's right. That's that was, that was essentially the uh, the, uh, the uh, wasn't there right? because that was the thing, I think there were some seven beneficiaries in the king case or animal charities, weren't they?
0: Yeah. But yeah but be do really do think, to see I do think registered land will be the most difficult because even in this case they handed over office copy entries and effectively that's what you get when you pass over your property you don't get a physical deed like you do with unregistered. Although it didn't go as far to decide that, I think it would be near on impossible going forward. Yeah,
1: yeah I think of his complimentary because the difference is with deeds, you can use those then to formulate the transfer. Yeah, that just it shows it's a record of ownership, I appreciate that. But if you can't do it by way of signing a transfer form or duly you know, having that duty witnessed and executed, then as you say he's looking to subvert the law of property to miscellaneous provisions act. So there we go. I guess on that note, you got anything more to add or
0: I think that's it from me. Okay. Well, look,
1: thanks very much. Thanks, everyone. We're trying to keep these podcasts fairly regular and topical. So if anyone's got any suggestions for any other topics, please do let us know. Otherwise, we'll be left to our own devices and thinking of random things to talk about. Thanks very much, sir. That's been really interesting. I've learned something, at least. So (laughs) cheers, everyone.
0: If you'd like to take part in the conversation, suggest a topic, or need some further guidance for your organisation, please get in touch at charities at hjtalks.co.uk. For more information on Hugh James and the services we offer, visit hughjames.com or check us out on Twitter at hughjameslegal.